Jordan. I'm here in Chicago, uh, here with a bit of a casual uh, roundtable of organizers, activists, and little old me. Uh, it's not, I think it's kind of like this silent emergency going on here. Every time I see a video from Chicago, it seems like there's an occupation going on here. Uh, so I'm here with uh, people from Chicago that organize, uh, lead peaceful protests, and also are, you know, uh, have done uh, the political thing too. I want to start with you because I know you got to go. Uh, William, you've been an organizer here. Uh, talk about, it seems like the police killings, I mean, it's not a new thing, but it seems like it's getting even more blatant and uh, careless. Uh, look, watching the Maurice Granton uh, video where they're shooting him from the back and he's on the ground and it looks like they're uh, almost like taunting uh, while he's on the ground. Uh, what should people know that are, haven't been tuned in to what's going on here? Um, um, this is like real weird, but it's cool. <laughs> um, I think that the police videos has been coming out. I, I don't think it's, what, what's the word that you, blatant? I think it's been going on. Only th only difference now is, is like in the, in the case of Maurice, we're getting it from a body count perspective. And that's something that I had to live with because that's something that we champion for, for transparency, you know what I'm saying? So now I'm like in this real crazy space because we fought for body cams to see what happens, but we're still getting shot, you know what I'm saying? And we're, now we're seeing it from a body cam perspective. So it's kind of it's kind of tough to deal with, to watch it. I don't think it's nothing that's not new because it's nothing more blatant than a 17-year-old getting shot 16 times. They don't get more blatant than that. Um, and we haven't saw anything as blatant as that. But the Chicago Police Department been killing people, been killing black men and women um, for decades. You know, this is not nothing new. It's just now it's starting to be more screened on, you know, cameras and, and footage, that's it. The mayor here, I know all of you are not, not big fans, but it, you know, I, I, everything I'm reading, it seems like a lot of lip service. You know, the Justice Department came out with their report last year. He's been negotiating with the Attorney General, but like not a lot of policies have actually been implemented. And he continues to basically try and gentrify and beautify like 10 to 15 blocks while leaving the rest of Chicago to rot. I mean, that's what it looks like to me. Um, what's in terms of organizing against the mayor, the election is next year, but uh, are you seeing anything as far as actual action from him, his administration? Obviously, you got the fraternal police here, don't want to move an inch. Uh, what, what part are you seeing from Mayor Emanuel? Nothing. We don't see nothing from this mayor, mayoral administration. We haven't been seeing anything for the past seven years, and I don't think we'll see anything in the near future. Um, Rom politics is not for African-American poor people. That's not his focus. That never has been his focus, never will be his focus. And I think that's something that your viewers need to know. And we're adamant about Rahm Emanuel does not care about poor black people in this city. And I think that his, his emphasis is to just focus on downtown and it, uh, communities like that, uh, Lakeview, uh, Ravenswood, Edgewater, um, communities that are not suffering from um, poor schools. You know what I mean? I live in South Shore, and not only do we have poor schools there, but we I've been in a food desert for five years. Not just me, but the 40,000 populace in my neighborhood. You understand? And he has no, him or the city council has, has just, 
no motivation to try to get us out uh, of these uh, these situations that we're living in. And it's not just police. It's just the livelihood of black people in this city is horrible, just period. From police, you could talk about the, the public housing authority here, the CHA, is over 100,000 people on the waiting list. The surplus is somewhere in the hundreds of millions, right? But we have one of the biggest housing crises in the nation. You know what I'm saying? And there's so many different issues that we could focus on, the education system. We on the, uh, we're going on our fourth, third or fourth superintendent or CEO of the Chicago, you know, two had to step down. One was indicted for federal corruption charges. The other one just had to step down because the inspector general said it was ethical violation. But each one was appointed by Rom. You know what I'm saying? Each one was appointed by the mayor. So that just lets you know what type of leadership that we under under this executive administration for this for the mayor. But we have to organize. It is some great leaders um, that are rising up that want to try to throw their hat um, in the ring politically and make some noise. So we trying. And I'm still like having trouble saying this with a straight face because I just don't understand. It's almost seven hundred million dollars that have been sent spent by the city of Chicago on just settlements. And it, I mean, if that's not like kill them, cover it up, sweep it under the rug, I don't know what is. How much of that money and also the borrowing to pay for that money uh, could be spent on everything he just talked about? Um, well, I think that, oh, <laughs> my name is Keena Collins. Um, I'm from the Austin community on the west side of Chicago, which deals with a lot of the same issues that Will just touched on in the south side. I think that you, you alluded to it perfectly. When we look at, all we have to do is look at the city budget. When we're talking about how the city is prioritizing, not only is it 700, nearly $700 million that has been put into settlements, but in this new fiscal year that's coming up, the police budget is being increased by 3.9%. That doesn't sound like a lot, but currently, um, the police budget is 1.5 plus billion dollars. So um, we're talking about Chicago Public Schools. Chicago Public Schools needs $3 billion to repair just so that it's actually teachable and people can actually go in. There are schools with mold and rats um, and holes and lead in the water. And so we're talking about the city is blatantly showing us who they're prioritizing and where they're prioritizing, not just with their actions and the things that they're saying, but with our taxpaying dollars. So the fundamental issue that I have, people think that it's this war on police, but it's not necessarily that. It's that how are we, um, it's the guns and butter argument. Are we investing in the social good? Are we investing in improving the lives of Chicagoans? And the answer is no. And people on the north side of Chicago should care about that too because an injustice for a child on the west side of Chicago is you know, more crime in your area, right? So it's, it's not exclusive to one side of the city, but I would definitely say that the city budget shows the priority. And uh, is, a, is a bubble being created now? Because you have downtown, and you know, I like the river walk, it's nice. But it seems like everybody in that area, it's, it's kind of like a little bit like New York City when, uh, you know, Harlem uh, people used to live uh, and just keep getting pushed up and pushed up. And everybody, I'd say, below like 70th Street don't know what the hell is going on in that world. Uh, is that kind of the climate here? 
Yeah, um, my name is Erica Nanton. Um, yeah, I would definitely say like one of the big things too that's so blatant and touching on what was said is that right now they're proposing the building of a $95 million cop academy. And I have been in the street with youth. I have been at City Hall together as we have literally been not allowed to enter a public meeting and systematically shut out of a public meeting as black and brown youth saying that we don't want $95 million spent on policing us, we want $95 million dollars in resources and a, a lot of proponents against the 95 million dollar cop academy that are in current elected office their narrative is oh the city is never on budget the city always overspends on these projects so 95 million is going to turn into 180 million and that's their reason for not supporting the cop academy not the fact that whether it's 95 million or it ends up being 180 million where are you suddenly finding this money after you told us that you were broke. And they, I recently was in a fight with tons of students from four of the public high schools in Inglewood that were all being shut down at the same time in a poor black community. They are literally shutting down every public high school in one poor community at the same time. And then when they have gun violence and you see that cycle of violence, lack of opportunity, there is no connection between the systematic shutdown of opportunity, access to education, inspiration. These students don't have art classes, music classes. They don't have a paintbrush to paint with. They don't got a musical instrument to play. But then we wonder why people are feeling hopeless. And then they want to spend that funding rather than funding robust educations for poor children, they'd rather use that money to police and sweep the streets of the unemployed that they've created. It is evil and it is sick and it's a revelation of the priorities and even those who claim to want to cause an opposition against this who are currently running for office, even their narrative is off. Because they're talking about it's a problem because they're going to go over budget. Just completely missing the point. You know what I mean? Um, one thing that I think that a lot of people have a misconception about the city of Chicago is this narrative. We know it's a red herring to say black on black crime. That doesn't exist, right? We know that it's in social proximity to whoever you live next to. That's who you will commit a crime against. When we're talking about city budgets, city shutdowns, and neighborhoods like South Shore, like Austin, the first priority of this mayor when he came into office, Mayor Rahm Emanuel, was to shut down six mental health facilities, right? So when we're talking about there is currently 3,000 people on a wait list to get city services for mental health. Um, these students, young people, folks just in every day in the city of Chicago are dealing with PTSD, anxiety, and trauma that comes with not only just over-militarizing and over-policing our communities, but intra-communal violence, right? And so the fact that the city continues to throw the money and think that the answer is, we know that more cops are not the answer, right? You could put a, a thousand million cops on the street in one square block and it, it won't prevent people from committing crime. But when you have job workforce programs, when you have good schools, when you have access to mental health uh, wellness, that is what produces responses and answers to these problems. So I just wanted to highlight that too. What do you see, uh, you're with Our Revolution, so obviously uh, organizing is important in this. We're seeing in New York, there's been some progressive victories. We're seeing even when progressives have lost, not just um, candidates, but ballot measures, it's starting to, the, the deficit and the gap of the loss is starting to shrink, we're seeing since 2016 in a lot of places. Are you seeing organizing here, uh, especially also white people, uh, joining uh, black people. Are you seeing any improvements? Because a lot of the people I'm talking to are like, uh, ain't nothing ever gonna change in Chicago. <laughs> I have definitely seen a major improvement since the Bernie campaign. 
Um, a lot more progressives are getting involved and what we're trying to do is we're trying to highlight the systemic problems in Chicago like lead in the water is our major issue this next um, election season. Also, we um, just won the Cook County Assessor's Race. Uh, Fritz Kagi just won against the Cook County Democratic Chair, Joe Berrios, who had been um, stealing, basically, uh, millions of dollars from black and brown communities by over-assessing their property taxes and under-assessing the property taxes in white neighborhoods. So we are looking at candidates that are going to support these issues that we're pushing. We're also now finding out studies have shown that they are ticketing. There are thousands of black people going into bankruptcy in this city because they're just ticketing their just those neighborhoods on the south and west side. So we're looking at candidates who are going to fight for these issues and we're not gonna support anyone else. So yeah, things are changing because other pe people that aren't supporting these issues are not gonna get our support. And also, I, I know you gotta go soon, but like just the psychology, like Harith Augustus, uh, just the, the video, it seems like he was getting out his FOI card, he was talking to one officer, it didn't seem like there was an issue, and then two or three come in, like the cavalry, for what reason? It, it looked a little like Eric Garner without the chokehold, but just like them coming in. Like, are you damned if you do or damned if you don't as a black man? Because like, if you respond uh, kindly and you know, without hostility, it seems like there's aggression either way. Yeah. Um, I do, I do, I, I definitely, and people that be, saying things like he should have complied or they shouldn't be complied. That's one of the most ignorant statements and insensitive statements that you could ever say till to an African-American. And people don't understand the, like, the level of impact trauma that we go through in the hood when we see stuff like that. Like I was literally, my, my campaign office, bro been up, my campaign office was literally across the street from where he got shot at. That's my neighborhood. I shopped there, I lived there, these my people. You know what I'm saying? I, I was just right there talking to some of them shorties. Went down the street, got something to eat, came back, and saw his body laid out in the street. That type of trauma on that, that's why it went well like that. Cause we, when crises happen in, in other places, when a white young person shoot up a school or something, they send crisis response teams in there. They send therapists and counselors and psychologists in there. You know what I'm saying, resources. But when something like that happened to us and our community, we don't get that. And they just expect for us just to, oh, we'll get over it. And that's why the type of response that you had on, type, on top of us not getting justice for nobody else in the past. That's why the response was the way it was. Now, as far as the stop, I, I, to me, I will always believe it was unconstitutional. This is a, a carry and concealed state. They said, they said initially they stopped Mr. Augustus because he had characteristics of an armed person. How does that sound? That mean everybody that in a conceal and carry state? It was racial profiling, that's what it was. And he was talking to an African-American cop. You wanna chime in on this? He was talking to an African-American cop and it's always been a story of our community. It wasn't until the white officer showed up that stuff turned deadly. And that's always been um, the story of our neighborhood and our community. When the white officers show up, it always turned deadly. Yeah, I think it's uh, Anthony Clark. What's up everybody again? Um, you know, I served six years active duty in the military. You know, I've been overseas, uh, you know, fought for our country, whatever that may mean. And when I got out of the military, you know, I was diagnosed with PTSD, you know, due to experiences that I, you know, had while serving. 
I see similar, similar issues within our communities. Like our youth, us, you know, even the older individuals that live in communities such as this, when you're consistently exposed to violence, when you're consistently exposed to police departments harassing you, where you don't feel safe or protected in your own community, you internalize that. And then you tie in the interconnected issues where our mental health facilities are closing, where our schools are underfunded so you don't have you know, social work support within your school systems, therapeutic support within your school systems. So we have children literally and young adults and older adults walking around with PTSD undiagnosed. Like I see the symptoms in the students that I teach, symptoms that I dealt with from war. And if you think about it, we're in a, a community in the United States of America and I'm seeing similar symptoms from war in our communities, you know, based upon every day. I mean, we just talked about four youth shot in the Austin community. You know, a young lady, we're gonna go to a visual this evening, I'm yelling at these shot out, out south. Every day we turn on the TV, we're inundated with violence. And it's always us, people that look like us, people that have similar backgrounds as us, similar last names, similar first names. So how do you deal with that? How do you unpack that? when there's lack of support in our communities and lack of investment, I think that's something to, to think about. And one more thing as well, the interconnected issues. You were in Oak Park yesterday, you know, with myself and some youth. I don't even think people understand how their communities, even if they care, benefit from other communities suffering. Like Austin is right next to Oak Park. We're out south, it's not that far from Oak Park because food deserts exist. Because there's lack of job opportunities and lack of infrastructure investment, where do you think that money goes? It goes into communities like Oak Park because we have a Pete's Fresh Market. We have a Whole Foods. We have two Jewel. You know what I'm saying? Two Jewels. We say Jewels, right? I was trying to say it the right way. It didn't sound right. I was like, I never say Jewel. <laughs> two Jewels. But all that money comes into our communities. And it never serves the people that are spending it. And if you go into communities, all you see are what? Churches, liquor stores, you know, check cash in place, currency exchange in the hood. You know, so we can't even invest in our communities. And even when there is investment, we're not getting the contracts. <laughs> we're not getting the contracts and it's not staying within the community. So I think that's something to think about as well. You know, when we talk to allies and we talk to people that want to be allies in verb form, recognize your privilege and recognize how you're currently benefiting from the system that exists and how gentrification plays a role because white flight occurred. You left the city, you know, you didn't want to live in the city. Redlining occurred, didn't allow us to buy property in certain areas, but now you want to move back to the lakefront. You know, this is prime real estate now, so now you're forcing us out. So, I mean, it's just, it's huge issues. And I just want to thank, you know, each and every person that's here, because you were mentioning earlier, like, we don't see this all the time, where you got West Side, South Side, Oak Park, North Side, like, coming together and collaborating. And this is the difference from that older generation and our younger generation, where we're trying to build those bridges and those coalitions uh, to impact change, because that's the only way it's going to happen to create transformative movements. Um, yeah, so it's... it's Real quick, um, Anthony, that you touched on that made me think about it, that this is so deeply rooted in something that I think goes so far back. But there's studies that have been shown that show that even in the medical profession, it's believed that people of color can take more pain. That, that literally there's a, like, that there's more pain. That, that dates back to slavery. That was in science textbooks. That literally, like, people of color, black people in, in particular can take more pain. That was a belief within our system of education and everything. And you can almost see that through what's happening in our communities, through our tears and our pain, because 
I've, I've, I've been working together with Parkland students. I have some ties in Florida as well and working with students in Chicago. And I noticed immediately when it was communities who are mostly wealthy, mostly white, it's like the pain is felt. It's the pain is significant, it's seen, and it's important. But something about our communities where I see our youth having to fight to, and with the help and support of students like Parkland, which is beautiful, but literally needing support to get the rest of the world to understand that the everyday shootings they have to go, they have to see and go right back to school after their friend was killed is just as painful. Like literally having to convince society that we can't take more pain, that we can't take this no more, that we are not any less human beings, that we can't take the pain. Even the narrative about um, Mike Brown being seen as super strong and a, like a super monster, um, Tamir Rice being seen as way older than he is. Like these narratives that literally lead to the desensitization desensitizing of seeing black people in pain and being marginalized and brutalized and how there's just this 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 symptom that we don't have the that we have some type of higher mental capacity to resist PTSD somehow or like we just have some magical powers that are going to keep us from not hurting and needing a break or a counselor after our friend was slaughtered like it's just something that is in our society in the fabric and it's time to challenge it in a large way across race across class it's time to end that thing that started all all the way back since enslavement. Profound. Uh, what about the Democratic Party? I mean, Ooh, like, like. So, because, well, I'm saying, like, nation nationally, nationally, it seems like the gravest threat is Russian Twitter bots and things and things like that. Uh, Russian Twitter bots, you know, Trump paying off Playboy models and all this stuff. That's all we hear. National media, National Democratic Party, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Rahm Emanuel, like, thick, you know, <laughs> love each other. And you would think the Democratic Party, you know, Bobby Kennedy, uh, uh, back in the day, he seemed to be advocating uh, for really breaking uh, what, a lot of what we're seeing now. I don't know if it was legitimate or not, but he was killed. Uh, but the Democratic Party has gone to the point where they catered for black votes during the primaries. And now, I mean, people are getting shot like it's, it, it's a video game here. And the National Party, as well as I'm sure locally here, isn't doing much. Yeah. So, Will, did you want to respond? Because I know you got to go. No, you good? <laughs> so, so, what I'll go ahead and say, this is interesting that you actually brought this point up. Um, this past primary, I participated um, as in the field operations department for um, J.B. Pritzker, who is one of the gubernatorial, he's a Democratic nominee in the state of Illinois. This gubernatorial election is going down as one of the most expensive gubernatorial elections in American history. He's a billionaire. Our current governor is a billionaire. Long story short, he picked a uh, young black woman to run as his lieutenant governor. So of course, you know, as I was doing research for the campaign, I'm like, yeah, this is good. Let me, let me go in. As I went in, I realized that the things that we are combating externally in the Democratic Party, we can't say, so for example, we can't say we want to do away with sexism, but we're okay with a little bit of racist talk inside of the Democratic Party. There were wiretaps that were released and basically he was speaking in a very racially insensitive way. Um, I left the campaign in a very public way and went to work for um, a progressive can candidate, Samina Mustafa in the 5th Congressional District. 
what I learned in that moment is that we are in a time where we didn't get to a Trump America by overt racism. We got there by subtle nuances of racism. And the way that we combat that in the Democratic Party is to say that we are no longer gonna accept this from candidates. We don't care if we're in the middle of a primary. We're not gonna accept this from candidates and we're not gonna work for and support candidates just because it's the, the popular thing to do or because they have the most money or what have you. Um, which was none of my motivation for being on the Pritzker campaign, but I started to realize as I was talking to constituents in the area that I was working in, which is the west side, which is the area I'm from, he does not speak to the values of the people, the working class people in my neighborhood. It doesn't matter where you go in, this, in the United States of America, the values of working class people are the same all over this country. And so how is it that a billionaire can understand what a mother of two kids uh, who's working two jobs is dealing with on the south side or the west side of the city of Chicago or in Cahokia, Illinois. And so I think like there's a lot of work that we have to do internally and it's gonna be required for us to blow the whistle essentially on a lot of these candidates. Um, and yeah, I wanna touch on too with this, with, with the Democratic Party, Lord. Uh, so one thing um, that I definitely see, like for instance, locally here in Chicago, um, Almost every single one of our majority black wards has a black alderman or alder person. It's not it's not black and white like so to speak here. It's not that that allows you to see a little deeper and like being on the poor people's campaign um, and 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 really looking deeply into Dr. King. See, Dr. King came to Chicago because he wanted to help with the housing discrimination. He wanted to bring some of that energy from the civil rights movement down south. But when he got here, he got shook because he had to meet a machine that he had never seen before. He was met by black people in power. And before he could even absorb the fact that he was meeting black people in power, they were already betraying him and saying, don't, we don't need you here. They had already been sent with an agenda and a message. And Dr. King was not prepared to deal with that type of dynamic because the whole narrative was, if we could just get black people in these seats, if we could just get people who look like us in these seats, we'll be straight. Well, guess what? In Chicago, in our majority black wars that are divested, food deserts, schools closing, we have black leadership. And so it's time for us to dig deeper. That's why I appreciate what, what our revolution is saying and those types of things because it's time for us to go beyond just the just that old narrative of like if we just have somebody that looks like me because capitalism has no color neoliberalism has no color there's all types of versions of it out here now everywhere you look and so basically when we come and we say that we want better we have to start demanding and raising the bar on that and saying you can't just come up in here and tell yo tell yo um i used to grow up on this block story and that's enough, because what policies do you support? Are you rubber stamping stuff that's closing down stuff in our communities? Are you off thinking that it's not the fact that resources are being redistributed, but it's about the fact the COP Academy's gonna cost too much? You know what I'm saying? Like, where your, where's your head at? And I think that's gonna be super important. Recently, No COP Academy um, youth went to a Block Alderman's Caucus meeting, and they went to that meeting to say and demand an outcry, as, as Anthony touched on, the PTSD, the trauma, we need resources, we want schools, we need jobs, like demands that should be made of your elected officials. And they were told, shut up, straight up, and then were told by their elected officials that they, that they were messing with some gangsters. That they some gangsters. Well, you know what, y'all are some gangsters. <laughs> 
okay? Because y'all hear embezzling, taking, stealing, not, not taking. Oh, y'all some gangsters, all right, okay? And it's time for us to deal with that. And I think it's time to break free. I think Chicago, along with some other cities who are in similar situations, St. Louis, Detroit, th this is a time for us to be real that is not just about any kind of blue, no matter who type mess because we are living under the destruction of that narrative. So I think it's time for us to really deal with that. Just to go off of what Erica was saying, so for the viewers who aren't from Chicago or Illinois, like here we have Democrats and we have Democrats. <laughs> like we have the people who have to run as Democrat to have a chance to win. No, 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 I'm talking about like progressive, you know, progressives who have to run as a Democrat to have a chance, but then we have the like neoliberal ROM Democrats. So it's almost like a microcosm of what's happening in this country. We have like the huge div divide between Republicans and Democrats on the national scale. Here we have a huge divide between the ROM Democrats, the Pritzker Democrats, and then we have, you know, folks like us who might know people who run as a Democrat or if I ever ran for office, I guess I would have to run as a Democrat if I wanted to win, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, so the, the policies that we're suffering uh, from here in Chicago are neoliberal policies. So these are folks like Rahm and then his cronies, or Madigan and then his cronies. Madigan, you know, he's in charge of the Democratic Party in Illinois. They're all profiting off of the corruption. They're, a lot of them are property tax appeals lawyers, coincidentally. Um, so that's just something I wanted to, to you know, play off of. But it's also what we're seeing nationally, because I'm attacked like nobody's business on Twitter. Shut up and be against Trump. And I'm like, but that's not going to change anything. Yes, Trump is awful, but you're going to get rid of Trump and put who in office? Cory Booker? Uh, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand? So they're not, they're not, as, viscer they're not as viscerally as uh, vile, but in practice, I mean, take your, either take your broccoli or your Brussels sprouts as far as policies. Uh, do you think uh, that progressive wing that she's talking about is making inroads here in Chicago? I mean, obviously, you ran for uh, Congress. It was a difficult race, but, you know, um, you ran, and you definitely organized well. Uh, what are your thoughts on, because, like, when I hear Mike, when I think Mike Madigan, I'm thinking, like, that quintessential guy in the back room smoking cigars and just rigging, rigging the whole thing. So how do, you, how do you really put a dent in that kind of corruption that's been going on here since the 20th century? Right. Yeah, I mean, to me, it consistently harks back to, you know, the importance of education, you know, educating our voting base, uh, educating our community members, uh, because if you look at, again, we talked about it, I think in the past, our past election cycle, I think the average age of voters was 45. And for me, this is just my opinion, this is an I statement, I don't think the older generation is going to be the generation that saves us, you know, just like the March for Our Lives, it's the youth that we have to listen to, and it's the youth that are gonna move us forward in progression. Because right now, what's happening with this neoliberal base is you maintain status quo. And for some people with privilege, status quo is fine because they're living okay. You know, they don't have the struggles that many of us are suffering with. They're still middle class, upper middle class. They still have a job. Their children are going to decent schools. Uh, so they don't necessarily see the importance of 
we need to move forward now because it's inevitable. If you maintain status quo, you're not going to move forward, but it's inevitable that you're going to regress, that you're going to move backwards. It's just part of the part of the game that we play. Uh, so for me in Chicago, you know, being in the military and then traveling around helping other candidates that, you know, are part of Justice Democrats, brand new Congress, that are progressive, you know, and I don't know if you all can speak to it, but Chicago's like a different animal to me. Like, it's a different breed of corruption, political corruption in particular, in Chicago. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's really different. And I mean, even if you look at how our districts are, are, are structured due to gerrymandering, uh, you know, even trying to out community outreach to certain districts in certain areas, certain wards, is even interesting. Because you have aldermen that literally are, are neighbors that don't work together, don't collaborate, aren't, aren't communicating. You have congressional representatives that aren't in the community, you know, aren't pushing for change, aren't working with the aldermen or alderwomen, uh, you know, to, to make a difference. Uh, so it's just, it's just a different level of corruption here. So I think we're, we're definitely moving forward, but I think it's going to take more time than you see in other areas, you know, like a New York or, you know, like a West Virginia, so on and so forth, because the, it's just so deep. You know, it's, it's just the, it's, in, it's rooted in the fabric of our communities, uh, this level of corruption. And the neoliberals, that base, they're, they want to hold on to power. You know, they truly do. And, you know, one more thing I want to say is I think we have to, as people, we have to ask ourselves, you know, how are we valued? Because we talked about J.B. Pritzker earlier. And honestly, I find myself, uh, I guess, in a conundrum of sorts because, of course, I don't support Rauner. You know, I'm definitely not a Rauner fan. But as a black man, I could say with confidence that I didn't see JB not one time step in our communities and really invest. That's just me. Really knock on doors and really talk to people and really see what, but I, what I did see him do was pay for yard signs, you know, pay for, you know, radio spots where he had a black mother talk and, you know, represent him and so on and so forth. So. Is that how our votes are valued? You know, I mean, we have candidates out here giving money away. You know, like that's, I mean, you know. And then I'll pass to you, Erica. Um, so I'm going to be the optimist here <laughs> because the, there's a deep, as a community organizer, somebody, my background is in gun violence prevention and criminal justice reform. Grew up in Austin. Fred Hampton was from Austin, right? The Black Panther Party was formed. The Illinois chapter was formed there. Chicago is a blue-collared, grassroots, organizing city. The top tier, the people we see, that, that top tier, they don't represent the city of Chicago. And to be honest, they don't represent the state of Illinois because that's what Illinois is. It's a very it's quintessential Midwest, Midwestern values. I think that uh, as we look at ways, I think that the wave is happening, right? Because we have things like No Cop Academy arising. We have groups like BYP 100, Asada's Daughters, uh, people who are like, oh, there's lead in the water? Okay, let's find a way to get that on the ballot to take care of that. There's so many grassroots programs and, and, and organizations that are sprouting up that I think that it's going to take the courage of more people stepping away from campaigns, getting in the campaign, so not only educating them what they're voting for up and down the ballot, but they need to get on the ballot. They need to be the true representation of their communities. We can talk about Rahm Emanuel all day long. His agenda does not move in City Hall without City Council. So the people who are being elected to represent these neighborhoods, and that's another thing, Chicago is a city of neighborhoods that are representing these neighborhoods are voting with him 90% of the time. So I think that there's several things that we have to do and when we speak about nationally in the Democratic Party, we have to start 
uh, amongst ourselves, amplifying and edifying the voices of people who can build policy out. I'm a policy person. Build policy out through different gender lens. Different, you know, are we looking through a queer lens? Are we looking through a feminist lens? Are we looking through a racial lens? And the problem is we're not. So we can push as many great candidates out and we can have them win, but when they actually get in those chambers, are they organizing in a grassroots way, in the chambers and outside the chambers and bringing that perspective back to the policy. And so that's how I focus as a Democrat, right? Leaning more towards the, that progressive stance. It's not just about great candidates. We don't need more poster children. We need renegades who are gonna write great policy. So um, that's just kind of my stance on it. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to touch on. I think one of the things that we can connect to this is what's happening with our millennial like cohorts and young folk, right? Is that in campaigns right now, the the MO is money, right? But we do we actually look into what that money's used for? What is the money actually used for? The money is used to influence the public opinion. And there's a couple ways it's used. Number one, multiple ads, so you see that person's name. I mean, no knock on prison, but I mean, I was on Spotify, okay, <laughs> trying to enjoy my song. And I was like, oh my God, where'd this ad come from? Like, he's on Spotify, all Snapchat, my God. So it's like, that's what that money goes for. But the other thing it goes for is consulting. It goes for consulting. And I'm just want to make this very clear. In our communities where jobs are lacking, opportunity is lacking, how many of us don't think much deeper than applauding our family member who gets a job on a Clinton campaign or who gets a job doing that stuff and we ready to clap because half of us ain't made, did nothing. But in the midst of our clapping, because we don't have a lot of opportunities, we are clapping for our own destruction. We are clapping for that talented family member in front of us to use those neutral talents and gifts that could be used for good or, or bad or whatever. We are applauding the use of those talents and gifts that our community has grown through struggle to be used for things that could detrimentally take us in the wrong direction because of our lack because we wanna applaud each other, we wanna see each other make it, we wanna see the few of us that somehow get our head above water. So in the midst of that, there's such a conundrum because now millennials are at that age where we are those cons consultant, like some of us are those consultant age now. We are, we are those people. And so they know, number one, millennials is broke out here, okay? <laughs> and like, they offering stuff, you know what I'm saying? And my caution to the millennial generation is do not let them make you their millennial firewall. Do not let them take your arts and talents and gifts and things that came out of this struggle and become the thing that protects them from their BS. That should be the very thing that challenges it. And it may take some sacrifice at first. And that's the other thing. If your five-year plan is going to make you most successful in five years than your community, that's the wrong five-year plan. Period. And so I think it's time for us to start looking deeper and be real about the fact that it's not going to be easy. It's gonna take some sacrifices in the front end, but in the end, it will benefit all of our communities. And that's what I think we gotta think about. And uh, before we end, I just wanna ask, because obviously it's hard to break through in this. I mean, even the local media here, it's like they just report killings like it's the sports score. You know, they just like, 30 seconds, on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. But if they, if they, if they report it, um, there's zero accountability, they don't challenge uh, the police. Uh, how do you really get this out as an emergency? Because the betting, you know, the Vegas betting is, unfortunately, you know, another black person is going to get killed tonight. Um, police killings, I mean, it's an emergency if you can't walk out 
and feel safe. I mean, uh, I talked to high school students yesterday. They said they feel like out outsiders in their own community. So how do you get that out to the wider public? Because of course CNN will come if there's like riots and pepper spray and they'll be here for three days and <laughs> pretend they care. And it's the same story in St. Louis uh, and you know Milwaukee and Cleveland and other communities. Uh, how do you get that out? Uh, not just the emergency of life or death, but the emergency, I mean, this is literally a desert. I mean, you're talking a food desert, people not have, school deserts. I mean, that's an emergency, but how do, you, how do you even begin to get that out to a wider public that's living in the clouds? Well, I would definitely say the advantage that we have in this generation is that we control the story and the narrative, right? We no longer have to wait for CNN, MSNBC, Fox News to come. We have it literally on our phones. Right, and so galvanizing our bases and our networks and social media and using it for the social good, essentially to expose the true narratives of what's happening. I can't, I mean, it happened in Cairo, Egypt, as far away, if y'all remember a few years back, the uprising in Egypt, that was how they were getting information. They weren't, they weren't waiting on, um, they weren't waiting, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just got like so deep. <laughs> Um, they were not waiting, they weren't waiting for the main media to get their story out. And so I think there's such a power in activism and organizing and storytelling. And we have to be uh, super proactive in understanding that there's the mainstream media and then there's the truth, right? And then we have to let that truth be out. But I always push um, that narrative to, to young people, even Gen Zers, right? Like y'all are on Snapchat all the time. You're on YouTube. YouTube's like the number one app to be used right now. Use it to that, for that to be your platform for the world to tell them about who you really are and where you really come from. I think um, folks like you, independent news media in Chicago, we have hard lenses everywhere. You know, a lot of events I'm at, you know, giving them a shout out. But uh, interrupting their lives. We have to just interrupt people's daily lives. They can't not pay attention to this anymore. If the news isn't going to report it, we have to report it. And I think we're doing our best to do that. So. Um, as far as like getting the message out, I also feel like there's a need in organizing, in the organizing world, it's time to go deeper. It's time to go on blocks and corners. It's time to be organizing to do selling squares. It's time, to, it's time for us to get outside of this whole model of, of meeting space and you know, um, you know, clipboards. And you know, it's just time to expand the way we reach our communities and who we're reaching and who we see as leaders. I was doing voter registration the other day and I intentionally went to Target dudes who are just hanging out just hanging out and I went and I was like I had my whole little thing about how vote and I mean I, I had the superest wokest like <laughs> voter registration to be ever and they were like nah we good one dude that was in the group said y'all need to do this everybody registered to vote but we will overlook someone like that as a leader and a significant influencer and mover in the community and sit at our same old tables with the same old people love 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 everybody dearly you know what I'm saying? But it's like when it's time, when it comes time, we need to look around and start seeing if it's too many of the same familiar faces. And if we're starting to share some of the same backgrounds, we're starting to share some of the same education levels. We are marginalizing ourselves because the directly impacted and the people who are the most likely to be shot, the people who are most likely to be in a food desert,
the people who are most likely to not ever be in a space where they get to have a, a, a sticky, um, what's them things? Well, we do the little, the, 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 the sticky poster board thing with the notes, and they very like not likely to be in those spaces are the very people who hold influence in communities to move communities, and we are not reaching them, and that is a failure that we have to own because we have become even elitist in our own progressivism sometimes with our educational privilege and different types of privileges that we don't think about. Yes, heteronormative, all types of things that are causing us to not hit the mark too. And that's why I think we could do better. Yeah, I think, you know, in thinking about it, you know, I find it interesting because I have the dynamic of working, you know, primarily within a suburb, like directly adjacent to, uh, you know, the city. So for me, I feel like the message has always been there. Uh, the issue for me has been who's been listening or who has not been listening. And I'm going to throw out that, you know, extremely popular term right now, intersectionality. Yeah. You know, how do we move into intersectional spaces in a sense uh, where you alluded to it earlier, where we have to understand the health of one community directly impacts the health of other communities. So if you're in, a, say, a suburban community or a high affluent, uh, you know, urban area and the communities around you are struggling, you cannot think that you're on an island and you're going to always be protected from it. This is not some dystopian future where you're above, you know, the United States of America and you're floating above all of the chaos. It's going to spill over into your community eventually. And in a capitalistic society, there's always going to be a bottom, but the bottom moves. So we're seeing reports now where, I mean, if you're making $120,000 a year, you're, you're damn near not even middle class. You, yeah, you're in the bottom now. So we have to think about that and understand that, you know, for me, how I tap into it is I'm a man. Um, I'm a black man, so I've experienced racism. But I would be doing a disservice to the movement if I could cape up, march, and scream to the top of my lungs against racism. But then I sit back and allow these wonderful women, women here to experience sexism and I don't speak up. It's a form of oppression. I know how racism makes me feel. So I don't have to directly experience sexism to know that I, one, can't cape up and lead them in their fight. I have to get behind them and lend my privilege as a man and my power as a man to their fight. And I think that's extremely important to understand in intersectional movements that we are all impacted. Because if you look outside and you see your neighbor in their time of need and you close your, you close your blinds and you close your door and don't help, okay, you might be good for the day. It may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen the next week. But eventually that issue is going to be at your doorstep and you're going to be at the bottom. So unless we mobilize now and create transformative movements and people start understanding that, yes, this message right now may not directly impact me, but it will. So I need to step up now and get behind the individuals that are fighting, you know, that are on the front lines and empower them further because if not, we're all gonna be gone. So, you know, for me, that's the important issue is just, you know, creating those intersectional movements and transformative movements and, and getting people to understand that this is all of our fight. No matter your background, demographically, economically, this is all of our fight because they don't give a damn about any of us, honestly. You know, at the end of the day, it's about the economy and they keep us split and separated by using our differences. Uh, so we gotta come together, you know, we gotta unify, so. You're all a lot smarter than me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, thank you for talking to us. Uh, you know, I think what's important is for media not to come, to come in on a random Tuesday and Wednesday and have these conversations, not just because some, you know, people are dying, but because people are oppressed and people are scared and people are desperate. They're not killing each other out here for, you know, like it's a game. Uh, people are desperate. And as a white person, I uh, am lucky and privileged that I don't, I've never had to experience that level, but I'm just the type of person that it bothers me. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is, 
this is uh, not just a fight of, of racial um, oppression. This is uh, an oligarchy. And this is, frankly, in many ways, it's starting to breed fascism in America. And they are trying to basically, uh, ab you know, basically push all the previously uh, even working class people out and now uh, push them to, you know, create the 51st and 2nd state for those people. And that's why we need to keep the spotlight on. So we'll be here all week. Uh, there's protests that might be popping up on Thursday, and we're going to talk to more people. So uh, thank you for watching, and the link is there if you want to support this reporting. It ain't cheap. So uh, paypal.me slash statuscoop or patreon.com slash jordanchardonreports. Peace. <laughs>